Amen. As you guys are taking your seat, if you would go ahead and be turning to Judges 20. Judges 20. As we continue our series through Judges this morning, which we'll actually be wrapping up within the next couple weeks. I know it's been a long haul, but this morning we'll take one step closer to that goal as we look at verses 1 through 25. Again, that's Judges 20, verses 1 through 25. As you guys are turning there, I just want to remind us of our context of where we are picking up and what Pastor Brian taught so faithfully last week is the height of human depravity that we saw at play when the Levite turned over his concubine wife to the worthless fellows of Gibeah. That led to an all night long uh, series of raping by those worthless fellows on this concubine wife, which led the Levite to cut her up into pieces as a sign of what had happened to send to all the tribes of Israel. So I'll read uh, chapter 19, verse 30, to settle in this morning. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So that was the Levites' call to the tribes of Israel. And this is where we see all of Israel gathered in our chapter today, and we will also see Israel go to war within itself. We'll see all the tribes of Israel go to war against the rebellious tribe of Benjamin. But one thing before we get going here this morning, I want to make very clear for us in understanding both the context like we just touched on, but also what we'll be walking through today and the war that goes on is completely avoidable. It was completely avoidable. It wasn't one that had to happen, but was birthed out of sinful circumstance. All throughout Scripture, and especially throughout Judges, we've seen God raise up judges who would lead the people of Israel in a just and holy war. There's such a thing in Scripture there. Although war is violent and it spills blood, there are holy causes of war, and we've seen as much in Judges. But I would wager that although this battle is holy in nature, as it is God-ordained, its reasoning is not. It's a battle of sinful circumstance that started with a lazy Levite, as we saw last week in chapter 19. The Israelites in this chapter, much like the church and its Christians today, if not careful, find themselves waist-deep in a bog of sin, sort of stuck in the middle seeing one of two options, either to continue to press forward and wind up where they left in faithfulness or turn back into deeper delving of sin. Why was this avoidable? Well, the skirmish comes soon after, mind you, the settlement of Israel in their promised land. It's not as if they had been wandering around yet again. They had just settled into their promised land. Things should have been peaceable. They should have been bountiful. But as we saw last week, in the absence of a king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the peace that could have very easily been lived in, as the Israelites were just delivered yet again and delivered into their promised land, was well attainable. And it had already been attained, yet they traded it again, doing what was right in their own eyes that led to the battle we see today. As we saw last week in chapter 19, and we'll see again in chapter 20, God's grace was exchanged and abused on sinful passions. And this is the reason for the bloodshed we see today as it was last week in chapter 19. So if you would, join me in prayer as we get ready to dive in. And and in doing this, I want us in prayer again to be active. And don't just listen to me pray, if you would. Be praying for yourselves. Be praying for those that are listening via live stream that they would hear the truth of God this morning. Um, Something that is not necessarily unique to what we do here in expositional preaching and going verse by verse through books of the Bible it will lead to some difficult things to understand. It will lead to a natural friction between our human understanding and the ways of God. But as uh, Pastor Brian just read in our call to worship in the scripture, we, we must engage with that friction as it's the very grindstone that God uses to refine us. So as we go through this morning, may we check ourselves now and to see and be careful where we could read into this text. And understand that anything we see, everything we will see occur here, is being redeemed by God and is cause of sinful human. So, join me in prayer over this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity, first and foremost, 
to be your local church, to be included in the bride of Christ. We praise you for the chance to worship freely and gather this morning free from persecution that brothers and sisters overseas don't get the benefit of. Your scripture is true, God, that when we gather, you are present. When your word is honored and taught, we should leave as we had just met with you because we did. God, is my prayer for myself that you would rid me of me and that it would be you alone that would speak this morning to your flock, to your church, to your sons and daughters, and that we would leave encouraged, challenged, and ultimately shaped by what you have to say through your word to your church. And this is our prayer in Christ's holy name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Join me in verses 1 through 7 this morning as we get rolling. The title of the section you see in your Bibles there is Israel's War with the Tribe of Benjamin. Verses 1 through 7 read this. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I am my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and out and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. In these verses, as we are setting the stage for this sort of assembly of Israel, we see the Levite giving a half-baked recording of what happened and to the rest of the council of Israel. Also in this chunk, we see the reason and sides of the war that will unfold. Again, remembering that this war was completely avoidable. It's about the fifth time I've said that, but why? Why does that matter? Why am I harping on that? Well, it helps us understand that as these two sides, the Israelites and uh, the, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin are going to war, neither side is clean. Their hands aren't uh, free of guilt. Uh, both sides are unrighteous, and both sides are responsible for what is about to unfold. As we can remember, just as much as this war that we'll see is avoidable, so was the death of the Levite's concubine wife. Remember, he was lazily traveling along, not doing his duty of honoring God in his existence. If anyone was supposed to be looking to God instead of his own ways in the time of Israel without a king, it was the Levites. Yet we find this Levite going out of his way, ending up where he should not have been, and he himself turning over his wife for the abuse and murder that ensued. So just as much as the war was unavoidable, so was its cause, so was the foundation of its war. Yet again, we see passions of sin laying a rich foundation for war. This helps us understand that the two sides going at it here are pharisaically pious-driven Israel. And when I say that, we see Israel coming together here, taking up a just cause, but again, the Levite who sort of lit the match that is about to explode in this chapter. He himself is the one who is pharisaically pious, presenting himself to be a man of God, yet proving in his actions to be nothing of the sort, hence making Israel complicit in this battle. And the other party, the tribe of Benjamin, being represented by the worthless fellows of Gibeah, who did commit the murder. I want to be clear here. After saying neither side is clean, there is still a camp in this war who is righteous, and it's the tribes of Israel. Now, this is important to understand because we must see God in this text and see how he will defend, uphold, and redeem his people. He will not let the blood that was spilled be in vain, nor will he let the blood spilled in chapter 20 here be in vain. There's a camp that is righteous, and it's the Israelites. 
again, the Levite's account was half-baked and dishonest. And many theologians and commentators would believe this was on purpose. They would also see that the tribes of Israel may have gone to the old man in, who, in whose house they were lodging, as well as the Levite servant, and gotten the fullness of the picture of the story, which is revealed in some of the verbiage in the rest of this chapter. But the Levite gave a dishonest account, and that further just underscores the richness of this soil of sin that's steeping this battle. We need to be careful to note, though, that the Levite's sin is not his own, but the wholeness of Israel is complicit And the one who's supposed to be a representation of godliness being everything but. As Israel's representation in this way is living a life of ungodliness and not fulfilling his call, Israel as a whole suffers and in suffering is dragged into this battle. So it's not out of their own merit or might that they are counted righteous, but it's out of the grace of God. And it's out of God's grace and justice that they are redeemed and justice is accomplished in our text. As we continue to dive deep into this, I want us to examine the nature of this gathering. You see verbiage used in this first chunk of text that reads, One man to the Lord. Now, if you've been with us or not and have been listening along, as I've mentioned already, the Lord would raise up many a godly man as a judge over Israel that would seek to unify them. That would seek to bring them back into one accord before the Lord and to serve obediently, to repent of sin, and then continue in faithfulness. But this is one of the few times that we see such verbiage here, describing the people of Israel and their unity before God. As we see again, Israel was gathered as one man to the Lord. They were so unified both in their mind and their reason for gathering and what would follow in their action that they could have resembled one man. Now, this is something that is important for us again because it's the beginning groundwork of God redeeming the pointless murder of the concubine. We also need to note that last week we were left perhaps wondering how God could redeem not just the concubine, but the situation altogether. Such tragedy. Yet here we see how in just the beginning of this chapter. Since the people of Israel, not just the Levite, but the people of Israel had become so disbanded that everyone was doing what they thought was right in their own minds, God would use their very sin to bring them back into one accord. The thing that the Israelites had carried on for in so long that had perhaps become so blind to the death of the concubine and the pieces being sent out to the tribes of Israel, if anything, was God holding a mirror up to Israel's self and showing them what had occurred when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So no wonder they were quick to fall into line. Read verses 8 through 11 with me. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now, this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. We see here that Israel was not just gathered as one man before the Lord. They were gathered in one mind of action in the Lord. They saw it was a serious issue. Again, symbolized by the pieces of the concubine that were sent out. Finally seeing the seriousness and the consequences of sin. So, Notice they did not just meet and discuss how sinful what happened, uh, how sinful what happened um, occurred, but they discussed what they would do about it, noting that in their great promise of provision and the seriousness that not one man who had come to this general assembly would return to his tent or go home until the matter was resolved. And not just in seriousness of preparation, but also providing what was needed, both in the 400,000 men and Lot against the tribe of Benjamin, as well as their provision. 
But the question in my study that I was asking myself is why now? Why did Israel pick now to finally take up their arms and finally return in one mind before the Lord? As I mentioned, there was plenty of sin going around already. It wasn't as if there was a shortness of motivation for holiness. All were doing what was right in their own eyes. So why was it now that Israel decided they should pick up arms and come before the Lord? I mentioned it already, but I want to drive this point home. And the reason for such is that God was gracious in showing the Israelites the fruit of their apathy. Israel had become so apathetic in the things of the Lord as well as doing what was right in their own ways that they became their own lords. They were apathetic toward the Lord. They had already had reigning over them that had delivered them time and time again, that had brought them to peace and constantly invited them to live peaceably if only they would submit to the Lord. But the Lord was gracious in showing them their apathy and the fruit of their apathy. That was the pieces of the concubine and the strife with their brothers. Note that Israel and the tribe of Benjamin aren't some far off relatives or even enemies. They are all pieces, tribes of Israel. This is a familial fight. It's not as if they had plenty of oil burning their feud over the years. It was something that broke. But we need to remember that the murder of the concubine And the reason for the war that we'll see today didn't just happen when the concubine was murdered. It didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't as if somebody snapped their fingers and all of a sudden there was cause for war. The seed for this war was planted in a rich soil of sin that we saw in Judges 19, verse 1. If you would flip to that. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. This war didn't just happen. Its seed was planted in that sinful soil, a Levite not doing his job, taking a wife that was not his in a place where he should not have been. We see that that seed was watered with the murderous blood in the account of the concubine's rape and murder in Judges 19.29. And we see that it follows and bears the bloodshed that we'll see in the rest of this chapter. Yet we must remember as God's children, and as I said on the outset, we must remember and be shaped by the text that it was God graciously showing the Israelites the fruit of their faithlessness that will lead them to faithfulness. Consider the opposite if the Israelites were so numbed that they did not take up a just cause or even see it as worth meeting for, if the Levite himself was not at least at the slight bit slightest bit outraged over what had happened, even if he sent the pieces for selfish reason to be noticed amongst his people and feel important, God accomplished it so that justice could occur as well as the redemption of his children. We must remember God's grace in this text and that Israel's faithlessness was the mirror that was held up to them by God and led them to faithfulness. We must also note how deep a slumber of sin the Israelites were in, that it took the alarm of this tragedy to wake them up. Perhaps we can look to our own lives and consider where we may look back on a period of time and see so much trouble that we landed ourselves in, or so much suffering that we did not have to go through, yet we waited through nevertheless, not of anyone's fault other than our own. Seeing that God never forsakes us, but we do make quite a habit out of forsaking our Father. As Pastor Brian hit on last week, the worthless fellows of Gibeah's murdering the concubine show us a sin, a type of sin that rivals that which occurred at Sodom in Genesis 19, 1 through 11. If you want to note that for yourself to go back and read later, and if you aren't familiar with what occurred to, uh, what happened rather, um, to Sodom, they were destroyed for their sin. And we see a sin in chapter 19 and the result of which in chapter 20 that rivals that sin in Genesis. Very much of the same, homosexuality, laziness, pride, murder, all unfolding to show us the height of human depravity last week. But one that I have not mentioned yet and is perhaps the most characterizing of Israel at that time and perhaps the most threatening and unspoken and unseen in the church today is the cowardice of the Levite. Now, why is cowardice 
being placed ahead of such awful and terrible things. We need only to look back at verse 25 in chapter 19 last week. Speaking of the Levite, as the worthless men in Gibeah were pounding on the door of the old man's house in which they were lodging. So the man, the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. I was discussing this with our college MC this week and uh, with my bride and Lord's Supper, and it's not explicit in the text, so I want to be careful, but I do think it is worth noting in what we see the text reading itself. I think it is worth believing that the Levite had not even forgiven his concubine wife for her adultery that happened in chapter, chapter 19. The reason I say this is because the concubine was murdered in her own husband's heart far before she was raped and murdered by the worthless fellows. It was the cowardice of the Levite to turn over his own bride for his comfort. We don't even see explicitly in the text that it was a point of concern for the Levite, but more of a shooing away to get the banging on the door to stop. Nor do we see in the text any tears fall over the limp body of the concubine at the doorstep, but rather a scooping and placing on the hind of his donkey. And the next we see is the cutting of pieces to send out to the tribes of Israel. So yes, there is heinous sin that occurs in chapter 19 that results in the war in chapter 20, laziness, rape, pride. But I would posit that the cowardice of the Levite, again, most represented Israel at this time and is the biggest threat to the church today. Another reason for this is because it took the singular instance It took this singular instance, albeit a sort of compilation of all the apathy that had already occurred, but it took this singular instance to snap Israel back into line before the Lord. What's the excuse for the church today? All it took in chapter 19 was the murder of one concubine wife, while today we have 3,000 unborn who are murdered daily. And even within the church, it's a point of contention as to whether or not this is actually murder, which it very much is. Remember, all it took in chapter 19 was one instance of murder for the church to be unified before God and set against sin. What is the excuse for the church today? Sexual abuse being hidden within the church and defended amongst its leaders who have no place in leadership within our own convention in the SBC, mind you with the southern hospitality that we espouse only two years ago to be busted with thousands upon thousands of cases of sexual abuse from men who would fill a pulpit like this, not only creeping in but defended within a false picture of God's bride. Sexual freedom, not just condoned, but defended by some within the church. Consider what God would plead through his people of repentance for in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament being carried out as the torch has been passed to us, the church today, at large. Not just people vying for them to live as God has made them, but those within the church, again, defending such. Seeing truth as relative, it's okay If a man can identify to be a woman, it's okay. If parents see it as fit for their eight-year-old to make the decision for himself to transfer, transition into a woman, it is senselessness. In chapter 19, it took one instance of murder for the church to be struck back into holiness. The reason for this is because the pursuit of holiness for so much of the church today has been exchanged for lazy piety for sentimental living rather than Christ-centered convictions unfolding in day-to-day life, I'll say it again, one instance of murder for the tribes of Israel to be brought back in to one mind before the Lord against sin. Yet churches are splitting up today over the color of rugs and whether or not pews are comfortable enough. While this may not be a primary issue for us here, just as much as Israel is complicit for what is unfolding because of the laziness of one member, we as the church believe in the unity that we have in Christ. So if one part of the body is sick or not doing its its job, we are complicit and responsible 
to spur them to faithfulness and for us ourselves to run all the more after God. How much more will the global church need to be shaken from a slumber of sin? There's certainly more than enough motivation to stand before the Lord and see that he is all we need. Otherwise, we see cities being lit on fire. We see empty cries for justice and we see a plea from a false, falsely motivated, sinful place that certain lives matter while they're killed in the womb. The result of this is we see a world clamoring for justice wanting a solution in church, being silent about the only solution in Christ. How much more will need to happen? As we see in Matthew 9, verse 37, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Everything I just outlined for us, although we may not be primarily a party of what is unfolding, as we're a local body here in Milledgeville, And there is much that is going on that's not in our immediate context, but is certainly in the scope of the global church. We still see that there is a lot of work to be done. There are a lot of broken people, as we ourselves are broken, yet have been redeemed, that need to hear about the redemption that is found in Christ. There's so many who need redemption. There's entire systems that have been broken by sin that need to be put on their knees before Christ. There's so much work to be done. Yet I fear that if we're not careful, even us here today, not just speaking of the global church, I fear if we're not careful that as children of God, whose jobs are to sow seeds of faith all across, no matter how rocky the soil, that as we're going about planting and running hard, there may be shadows or weeds of sin growing in our shadows. And the reason I say this is because the reality of these weeds are on full display in the Levite today and in Israel and in the tribe of Benjamin. And we see that the weeds of sin are kept cool in the shade with soft winds of self-centered confession and half-baked repentance that we see the Levite commit. Or perhaps we can turn to an even deeper weed of sin in the Benjamites. Join with me in verses 12 through 17. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered Out of their cities on that day, 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. There's three points in which we can see in this next series of verses today. The first is this that we'll have on the screen for you. Is that we see the Benjaminites, just kidding, not on the screen, but in your notes. We see the Benjaminites hiding in sin. We see the Benjaminites hiding in sin. Not only could this war have been avoided by the Levites' obedience, but it also could have been completely avoided by the Benjaminites as well. Note here that the Levite and worthless fellows of Gibeah representing all of the tribes of Israel, including Benjamin, were held to the same standard of holiness as they were all people of God. Yet it was their disobedience across the board that planted and sowed the seed of discord and violence between them. All it took for the tribe of Benjamin to avoid this was turning over those who were responsible for the murder of the concubine wife. Also note, as I mentioned earlier, we see that the tribe of Benjamin was not left out of the call for all of Israel to gather. Uh, Some theologians disagree on this, but according to Levitical law of that time, if a party was convicted, they were able to defend themselves. So it is uh, a belief that they had received not just an invitation, but a legal summons of a sort to gather with the rest of Israel and not only defend themselves, but Notice, it could have been just as easy as this. 
the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, coming to that same gathering that's mentioned in verse 3 and saying, we're responsible, here are the men, and that would have been it. Instead of thousands and thousands of death that will see, it would have been the death of a handful, according to the law of God. Not only this, but our second point, we see that the tribe of Benjamin was protecting sin, both in their uh, harboring these murderers, but also within themselves, they did not even listen to their brothers, notice brothers from the tribes of Israel. They had become so brazen and doing what was right in their own eyes that they couldn't even spare the time to hear the rest of Israel's plea for them to simply turn over those who were responsible. And in doubling down on the disobedience of the worthless, worthless fellows of Gibeah, they too are now held responsible for sin. In refusing to listen, they also uh, denounce their opportunity for confession and they avoid correction and instead pick war. As we see in point three, the tribe of Benjamin also fights for sin. We must remember here that the dawn of this battle is sin as the middle ground between Benjamin and the rest of Israel. We must also notice that the act of sin and its protection is the very splinter that is separating the family of Israel in this instance. Again, it does not have to be this way. Yet with every struggle of disobedience now by the tribe of Benjamin, that splinter drives deeper and deeper, creating a further divide, just as it did for the Levite in abandoning his God-given call to represent holiness in a time where there was not much. And seeking his own way, that splinter dove deeper and deeper, causing a separation. Until, as we see here, it becomes a mortal wound as many pass away in the heat of war. Thus, in sin's dealing, since God's sons cannot act accordingly, all of the parties involved now, all of the tribes of Israel, he would see fit to make them do so as the stage for war is set. If you would, mark in your notes, or perhaps flip there if you have uh, the time now. Numbers 14, verse 18, speaks to this, and I believe speaks to where God is at in this text now as he looks down on his sons. Again, that's Numbers 14, verse 18, if you're taking notes. We see here the character of the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. It's true in Scripture that the Lord is long-suffering and patient with those who spit in his face with sin every single day, but he will by no means pardon the guilty, and there is plenty of guilt to be shared in this instance of war. Read with me the rest of our section in verses 19 through 25. In response to the tribe of Benjamin gathering their people, uh, rather in 18, I apologize, 18 through 25, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people in Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took carriage uh, courage, and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Pastor Kyle will wrap up the rest of this battle next week, but what we just read was Israel losing the first two days of this war, facing many casualties. But we must see that as Israel goes to war, it's a painful process of the splinter of sin being removed in the family of Israel. Remember that this is deep now, and it takes far more than just the cutting of a sword to fix a matter of the soul. 
Even though there's bloodshed, we have to recognize still the grace of God and holding true that those who are evil will receive their punishment and also those who are God's children will receive discipline. Note that the first two days of loss, they speak far less to the might of Benjamin than they do the discipline of God's children and the Israelites. Why is this necessary? Again, because all of Israel is complicit in this cause of sin, as well as responsible for its repentance and dealing, even for as little as one tribe in the tribe of Benjamin. In the same way, the tribe of Benjamin is also complicit and responsible for the handling, confession, and repenting of sin for just a handful of men that take lodge in their location. It's a painful process that we see in the bloodshed and weeping that occurs as the Israelites go up before the Lord at Bethel and weep over what is happening, over killing their brothers for something, again, that could have been easily avoided if only for proper confession and repentance. There's a quote from J.I. Packer, who is now passed on to glory over the weekend, that I feel like speaks to this painful process, maybe which we can also relate to in understanding that as we run our hands along sin and don't expect anything to happen when we catch a splinter, sometimes it runs deeper than we imagine. And there's many pains that we face. But this quote from J.R. Packer, again, I believe speaks to this. God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. Uh, this perfectly characterizes Israel as they spent quite some time cast off doing what was right in their own eyes only to be brought back before the Lord by the fruit of their apathy, the sin of a murder by their brothers over a Levite's concubine wife. Make no mistake about it. We too are at war over sin. It is not an easy task to go out into a world that hates their creator it's not an easy task, especially in the South, to tell people that they are not simply Christians because of where they are on a Sunday morning, but because of what they leverage their lives for. This fight of faith, the Great Commission to go and make disciples, is no easy task, so we are certainly at war. But we also must be careful to notice that we are also at war against things unseen the weeds of sin that may be sprouting up in the shadows of our own souls. We are certainly at war just as Israel was, and perhaps not even with other brothers but ourselves. What is the solution to this, and how could a Christian possibly have hope, especially in a world, again, that hates God? Remember, there is no neutrality. We are either enthralled and in awe and in love with God our Father, or we hate him. We are either friends of Christ, sons and daughters, or enemies of the kingdom of God. So what is the solution? And in our own lives, as we speak to that, what is the solution for sin that so easily entangles, not even in our hands, but in our own minds that we give birth to as we plant seeds of apathy long, long ago? What is the solution? I would wager that it's the preeminence of Christ. Again, if you would, mark in your notes, Deuteronomy 31, 8. Deuteronomy 31, 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, we may not know it at first read, but the same truth is found in our text this morning in verse 18. In Judges chapter 20, verse 18, as the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? Notice the Lord's answer. Judah shall go up first. This speaks of the coming of the Lion of Judah, Christ, who was born out of the lineage of this tribe of Judah. 
It must bring our minds to understand the truth that is in Deuteronomy 31.8, that the Lord goes before us. In this, just as though we are prone as the Israelites to be hiding in sin, we can instead be hidden in Christ. If we are indeed sons and daughters, we now have free reign to confess and repent and not receive just punishment as Christ already has on the cross. That although Israelite and the tribe of Benjamin was protecting sin as we can do if we are not careful, we can instead be protected from sin, both its condemnation and its effects, as we are no longer slaves to sin, but now, according to Christ, slaves to righteousness. As Paul writes all throughout Romans, we no longer just have the freedom to present our members to God, but the responsibility to put off the former self and present our members as tools of obedience before God. The alternative, again, is that we protect our sin. We do this through not confessing. And maybe not even just not confessing, but avoiding specific brothers and sisters altogether because we know they will ask. We may do this as all are guilty, myself included, in a comparison game of other Christians and consider our sin to not be so bad, forgetting that all sin is equal and all sin nailed Christ to the cross. If we're not careful, these weeds aren't just something that may spring up incidentally, but they may be the things that we're planting rather than seeds of faith, seeking salvation of lost souls in this world. And make no mistake about it that although we are children of God, our hearts can still certainly become hardened as the scripture teaches, even so much so to the point that some will arrive to the gates of eternity one day and will be told to depart as God never knew them. That the weeds or sin are are not dealt with, it is not because Christ is an inadequate sacrifice, it's because we are loving the coolness of the shade of sin far more than basking in the light of Christ. But through Christ and his preeminence, we no longer have to protect sin, nor should we have the desire to do so. But we are protected from sin, both its effects and its condemnation. And for our last point, as we can be so prone to do as Israel and the tribe of Benjamin did in this, uh, the first two days of this war, fighting for sin, we now instead are both freed and responsible to fight for faithfulness both in things seen and unseen, both in truth and in deed, as we discussed last Sunday evening in our family time of worship here at the branch. All of our actions start somewhere, and it is in the mind of man. If we are apathetic and not beholding our God first with our mind and the eyes of our hearts, then we are putting ourselves at a great disadvantage to expect any sort of theology to flow to our fingertips and move our feet to action. So please understand that in Christ, we no longer fight for our opportunities to sin. We are freed from that being our natural state. And as we speak of the preeminence of Christ, we must also speak of the new creations that we are in Christ upon regeneration and salvation that these truths are not just something they read, but they are realities for the life of a Christian. That theology is not just something that fills our minds, but does indeed flow to our fingertips and moves our feet, marching in the rhythm of God's love. The biggest thing I want us to notice today, as I've said time and time again, that this war was completely avoidable. Not just even in the tribe of Benjamin's confession, but in the Levite being and doing what he was supposed to do. If only he had been looking to the Lord rather than himself. If only all of Israel had been doing what God had told them to do, which is to enjoy God and live accordingly. This battle could have been completely avoided. Much is the same for the sin in our own lives and the shortcomings that keep us from going out and serving faithfully and running to take the message of the gospel to those who desperately need it. Now, don't hear me say that the task for you is to go out and sin 
or rather, (laughs) not sin ever again. I would, however, want to echo Paul and say that in light of God's grace, we should go and sin no more. Seeing sin as something that is not a place of comfort for us, but as something that kills us and is killing others in our backyards. And the only anecdote, the only thing that can bring people from death to life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then my plea for you as the local church here is to not go and be perfect as it's impossible for you to do. Simply to recognize the perfection of your Savior and understand the biblical truth that when sin is properly confessed and properly repented of, it will always lead to unity with Christ. When sin is properly confessed and properly repented of, it will only lead to unity with Christ. We see this as true in the whole scope of Scripture, and we'll see it for all of Israel at the end of Judges and in the end of the canon of Scripture that proper confession and repentance will only and always lead to unity with Christ. It's my fear, especially in the Southern Baptist bubble, that we can fall so prone into thinking, whether it be from past experience or projecting our own fears onto God the Father, that we could bring something so gruesome to him or so vile or so hidden for so long that we'll be shamed away. And then before we know it, we are slow to even confess to brothers and sisters as we are not repenting to God the Father. Friends, I, I beg of us to understand that as we are called to go, be the hands and feet of Christ. These weeds of sin will wrap around our ankles quicker than we could ever expect as long as we are doing our due diligence and hiding them away. I also want us to understand that this is an impossible task to do before a God who is omniscient and omnipresent. It's a losing battle and we are the only ones who suffer from it when we seek to pad our closet full of skeletons of sin. So then the question is, how then can this world be redeemed? As Christ said it will. How then will God establish his kingdom? It comes through many things, primarily the obedience of God's children to their father. We see this in faithful men such as J.I. Packer, who run hard 93 years and leave behind a legacy that points only to God's grace and God's glory. We see this through simple men, not of the mind, but of their office. From pastors you will never hear about, preaching faithfully even now, overseas and other central Georgia towns across America. But primarily, how this happens is you, us, the Branch Church Millersville here, pulling up the weeds of our own sin and our own lives so we can run strong after God. Church family, please do see there is more than enough motivation for us to put off the old self. Judges may be difficult to walk through, but I can't think of a better mirror for us to look in of church past and see the result of hidden sin and apathy to a holy God. So then let us examine and understand fully the freedom we have in Christ to not serve the things of the flesh, but instead the truth that our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this happens moment by moment as God sustains the breath in our lungs. If you are feeling a lack of peace in your life or a lack of joy, it may be worth noting and visiting that part of the garden of your life that is in the corner and shady and home to many things that either are not looked at or simply not thought of out of fear of God. If that's the case, church, I would just call us, myself, and all this week to repent and understand that that repentance is a gift in which we see the freedom we have in Christ that knowing when we run to God with their sins stained 
or sin-stained hands that he washes them time and time again. And it is only as we see in the Pharisees and those who hide sin for the rest of their lives that will feel the heat of hell and God's wrath rather than God's discipline as a loving father to beloved children. The world certainly needs the gospel and we should be running into every avenue that God has placed us in in our lives to speak such. But it's pretty difficult to do if our feet are tangled and wrapped up in weeds. Look to Christ, not with your eyes, but with your minds, with your hearts. See freedom and understand exactly what it is that that freedom holds us to. In every facet of life, Search the corners of your very soul and ask God to do the same, to perhaps encounter and come face to face and confess those sins that we maybe have come be, become blinded to. God is faithful to do so. We need only to fall face first into God the Father. God, thank you for your grace as it is the reason we are ever able to gather that we are here. We thank you for your character and understanding that you are our Father, you are loving, while seeing the truth of Scripture that you are patient and long-suffering toward those who would abuse your grace as we are guilty of. Yet you are faithful and seeing that the evil will be punished and that your sons and daughters will be disciplined as it will lead us, it will lead the church back to faithfulness. So God, I pray for myself. I pray for our flock here. I pray for the global church that we would be so bold and so humble that we would plead with you to search our hearts that we would understand you if we are indeed sons and daughters as a loving father. And that sin was already paid for on the cross of Christ that we deserve. So instead, what we receive is the benefit of confession to brothers and sisters and repentance and putting off sin and instead turning to you. So God, I pray again for myself and on behalf of our flock here and for the church at large, search our hearts. Let us not be comfortable with being complacent in light of Christ. Would you instead give us the courage that is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ to put off sin, to confess to one another, and go out into a world that you will redeem by the hands and feet of your church. Be with us, God. Be gracious. And allow us another day to run after you. It's in your son's name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.